0: Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Sammy Sponenberg.
1: And now I'm running down this mountain with this piss all over my leg, and all I can think is that I never thought a Tinder date would end up like this.
0: That and more. But before that, I just want to tell you about this brand new podcast from Glynn Washington of Snap Judgment. You might remember Heaven's Gate. It was the cult. That in 1997, this was the hugest news story. It was fascinating. 39 people were found dead in a San Diego mansion. They were wearing uniforms. Remember, they had those Nikes, brand new Nikes all of them were wearing. They were planning to be taken into the heavens or the universe by a UFO in conjunction with the halley Bop comet. <laughs> the whole thing was as bizarre as it could possibly get but there's so much more to the story there's so much more going on behind the scenes than you might have thought glenn's new podcast heaven's gate talks to people who lost their loved ones and those who still believe the cult's teachings to understand why people join cults why this one ended so tragically you're going to hear a lot that's going to surprise you now i didn't know this glenn grew up in a cult And of course, he's an incredible storyteller, so that perspective in itself is going to be fascinating. So subscribe to Heaven's Gate, the podcast, wherever you listen, like Stitcher or Apple Podcast. Remember, that's Heaven's Gate. Now here's the show. Whoa, whoa! kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Hudson behind me now, or if you know jazz, it's Jack DeJohnette, Larry Grenadier, John Madeski, and John Schofield. It's always kind of funny when a bunch of jazz all-stars get together and then decide, okay, when the four of us are in the same room at the same time, then we're... Hudson. <laughs> All right, Hudson. And we're calling this week's episode Urgent, which is what I put at the beginning of the subject line for every email where I'm begging people for particular story pitches. Lately it's been scary stories we've been looking for because it's the Halloween tide. It listen, it doesn't matter the time of year. You can send us your scary story pitches anytime, anytime. You can always find us at risk slash submissions. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear from Sammy Sponenberg. Now, that was an urgent, an urgent situation. That was when we went to Salt Lake City. Sammy is 20 years old. She had never told a story live on stage before. She was a fan of the podcast who decided to give it a shot. We did not know that Salt Lake City's laws, because of Sammy's age, would forbid her from being able to set foot in the establishment where the story was being told. So she had to tell the story from the doorway. The entire audience had to turn in their seats and look off in the distance to... This little figure in the doorway Telling her story It was so brave of her Sharing a story for the first time ever With such a big audience Just to begin with But then also under such strange circumstances And to pull it off so well It was very inspiring to see But before that Another strange circumstance Brought us our first story today Rich Monahan. ...was a fan of the show who reached out to us. I think he was hoping that he might be able to get on to the L.A. live show. And he sent us a recording that was just made with his phone, you know, just the voice memo app on his iPhone, of this story. And normally we would really workshop something with someone and and we would, you know, try to get it recorded with professional equipment... But the way that Rich shared this story, just in this very rough, raw voice memo from his phone, was so enjoyable as is that we took that, that original recording, and we made this. So without further ado, here is Rich Monahan with a story we call Grapefruit.
2: So it was the first day of summer after my sophomore year of high school. And uh, at this point in my life, I was a total loser. Uh, But what I lacked in an ability to talk to girls, I made up for in acne. And so this particular day, the first day of summer, was a really big deal. Because it was going to be the first summer in which I had the house all to myself. My sister had just moved away to college. Both my parents worked during the day. So I had total freedom. Like, this was going to be my summer. So that first morning, I wanted to do something really special to mark the occasion, and I was like, hmm, well, I could jerk off, but it's not really special because I did it all the time. But then I remembered something. I'd spent the entire school year sitting around the lunchroom table with a bunch of other virgin dudes exclusively talking about girls and sex and all the fucking we weren't doing. That was the constant topic of conversation. And it's a weird thing too with teenage boys because when you're talking about masturbating and girls and everything, there's almost this sort of like aspirational quality to the conversation too. Like I remember one time my buddy Rob came in proudly one day and he was like, dude, I beat off twice in like 10 minutes, like I came twice. And I remember being so intimidated like, holy shit, like years from now when some girl finally wants to fuck Rob. She's going to be so impressed that he can, like, go twice in ten minutes. Or there are other kids who's like, yeah, like, I was jerking off and I lasted, like, forever. And it's like this sort of weird sort of, like, doomsday prepping situation where we're not just jerking off in the moment. We're all kind of gearing up for this thing that's eventually coming for us. And so you're kind of running around lost and you're like, well who are these fuck machines? Like, are these kids for real? Or like, who's got a good lead? And like, I was just such a little insecure kid. Like, I had barely kissed a girl. I barely had armpit hair. Like, my insecurities just ran so deep. So you're just kind of sitting at this table just sort of like gathering all the information you can. And it was in one of these conversations that uh, at some point my buddy Rob, told me that uh, this guy, Nikki Pellini, who, by the way, um, I feel like I should always change his name when I tell the story, but it's such a fucking perfectly Jersey name. Like, this guy did an assault charge like 10 years ago. He cracked some guy's skull open, but I still really, it's hard to find a better replacement. Anyway, okay, so he was a bad kid for sure, but one who had had verifiable sex with girls. So Nikki told Rob, who told me that Nicky said Rob, Listen, man. I've had sex. Like, I have fucked girls. And I'm telling you, if you take a grapefruit, cut a hole in it, and microwave it for 30 seconds, it feels just like vagina. So, I'm mulling it over in my house, and I'm like, huh. No, no way. Also, like, Uh, I grew up in a straight-up wonder bread and fish sticks kind of house, so something like grapefruit was so exotic, it might as well have been fucking foie gras. But so, you know, just in case, I go down to the kitchen, and there must have been some sort of like weird fad diet or fucking segment on Oprah about grapefruit like being a superfood or something. I don't know, it was the 90s. But I go down to the kitchen, I look in the fruit basket, and sure enough, there are two huge grapefruits in there. And so I'm looking at this and I'm like, no, I would never do this. Also, like, it doesn't make sense. Like, this kid probably just made this up because, like, there's acid in grapefruits. And, like, this is just sort of a weird kamikaze mission. Like, something could go wrong. This isn't great. So I'm sitting there and I'm like, yeah, you know, this is a problem. But also this kid says it could feel like real sex. But, like, I'm never going to do this. So I'm just staring at this grapefruit like, no, no way. This is ridiculous. No, I could never take this risk. I will never ever do this yes i am absolutely totally doing this so i cut a hole in the grapefruit i microwave it for 30 seconds i take it upstairs i lay a towel on my bed because i'm a gentleman and so i get in the zone i lay down i stick my d in this grapefruit and it was amazing my 16 year old brain had never experienced anything like this before it was Unbelievable! It's like I was suddenly on another planet I just sort of close my eyes And just sort of put this thing upon me It's that weird moment where you're like Is this going to be cool? Is this going to be fine? And then it goes on and you're like Oh, this is like the finest thing that's ever happened Like there's just this sort of like Electric jolt through your body And like Your entire life has been talking about sex and how good it could be, and you had no idea. And then you get there, and this weird fucking grapefruit graces you with its presence, and you have this moment where you're like, oh, we were right all along. This is the most perfect thing. This is the best version of humanity. And so I'm just going at it, and I'm just destroying this poor grapefruit. I burst through the other side, and it's like splitting in half in my hand, so I'm trying to hold it together, and it's just a total mess. I'm just sort of like vice gripping it on, and it's spitting juice everywhere, and you can smell it. It's just like 30 seconds of total mayhem. It's horrible. By the time I'm done, this grapefruit doesn't even look like I fucked it. It looks like I got in my car and ran it over. When I finish, I immediately get panic-stricken. What if somebody finds out about this? Because, like, there's just no way you can be the kid who fucked a grapefruit and walk around school and, like, everyone's cool with that. Like, what if there's a world in which, like, somebody's looking in a window or somebody heard me downstairs or something? Kids have gotten down in this town for much less. There was a rumor that this kid, Matt, who lived in the neighborhood, had jerked off his dog once, and, like, he couldn't live that down. That followed him to the end of his days. If somebody found out that I actually fucked a grapefruit, What would my parents say to me? What is that therapy session? So I'm immediately, I'm like, no, no one can ever find out about this. The secret dies with me. So I get all forensic about it. I gather all the evidence, the towel, the grapefruit that is just horrible right now. And I throw it all in a trash bag and dispose of it in a secure location. That's my chore. I take care of the trash, nobody else is gonna find it. But still, I am sweating bullets for the rest of the day. Nobody can ever, ever, ever find out about this. As if there's a world in which like, I'd be at dinner with my parents that night And they'd be like, oh, we're missing a grapefruit Richie, did you fuck it? So, we have dinner that night And the grapefruit never comes up Next day, same thing, not a word about it Third day, still nothing I tell no one, not even Rob, not even Nikki Polini None of the dudes I know I don't say a single word And slowly, day by day my paranoia fades as I realize that I have maybe totally gotten away with this whole thing. But something else is happening too, because I suddenly feel like a real man. I didn't fuck a girl, but I fucked a thing that some kids said was just like fucking a girl, and for me, that was enough. Because I swear to God, this is totally true. Once I fucked that grapefruit, like a creepy little grapefruit fucker, I felt so mature, I finally switched from tighty-whities to boxers. Or like I'd be hanging out with my dude friends and I would just sort of look around smugly and think, these poor fucking fools, they haven't lived a life. But me? I've been to the mountaintop. And so about a week or two passes and I'm still just on cloud nine with this thing. I'm suddenly the smartest person I know. Nobody found out about it, and I have totally convinced myself that this grapefruit experiment has in fact somehow made me better at sex than all the other virgins I know who have not fucked a thing that came out of the microwave. I am suddenly this pioneer. I may have zero actual experience with girls, but now I have like... Cut to the head of the line as far as dudes who are awesome at fucking. In my brain, it's like me and like LL Cool J. We're the guys. (laughs) And so this is going on, and I'm feeling great, and I've gotten away with murder. And one morning, I'm like, you know what? It's time to take another shot at the title. I had to chase that dragon, man. I was going back. So I run downstairs to the kitchen, check the fruit bowl, but there's no grapefruit but there is an orange. So I'm like, fuck it, same difference, let's do this. So I go through my little preparation ritual, I cut a hole in the orange, I microwave it for 30 seconds, I take it upstairs, I lay a towel in my bed, I get in the zone, I stick my D in this orange, and it is at this moment that I realize an orange is about half the size of a grapefruit. As such, when you microwave it for 30 seconds, it gets as hot as the fucking sun. And I am immediately struck with this white-hot searing pain. I'm like... Oh no, oh no, 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 oh Jesus fucking Christ, what am I doing? As if it only had just occurred to me that this is a horrible idea. Every alarm is going off in my brain. It is this total system shock, and I'm losing my mind like, is my dick on fire? Is it still going to be there when I look down? Do you have any idea how many nerve endings are in your genitals? The answer is way too many to fuck piping hot fruit. So my body locks up, and I'm just writhing in my sheets like, oh fuck, how bad is this? Is this neosporin bad, or is this emergency room? Bad. Do I have to call 911 and say, Hi, I burned my dick. Send help. And they're like, What happened? And I'm like, I fucked an orange. And they're like, Why was the orange hot? And I'm like, Because we were out of grapefruit. So I scream and whip the orange across the room. And then I'm just holding my dick like a buddy in a war movie, like, oh, My best friend, I have betrayed you. My sweet prince, what have I done? And in this moment, every ounce of manliness I had gained that summer vanishes. All of my shame comes flooding back, and I would not be inside of anything else for another three years.
0: I wanted to share this with you because I believe every man should get grapefruited. When you grapefruit your man it's going to feel as if you are giving him head and fucking him at the same time. So what you need to do is you need to of course have a grapefruit. What you want to do is make sure the grapefruit is room temperature. All you have to do is put it in warm water. Do not microwave it, do not boil it. Once it gets to that temperature you want to take a knife, put a hole in the middle of the grapefruit approximately the size of your man's penis. Now when you grapefruit your man. He has to be blindfolded. Say, baby, you know what? Tonight, I want to do something a little freakier. I want to suck your dick blindfolded. Your man will blindfold himself if he knows he's going to get some head. Once he's nice and erect, what you're going to do is replace the grapefruit from your mouth. You're going to twist up and down on his shaft and suck the head at the same time. (sighs)
2: <sighs> and that's the Raifu technique.
1: So this summer I was in a pretty shitty situation. I found myself having to run down this mountain I had thorns sticking in my legs and they were being cut by the branches and blood was pouring out all over the white snow below me I kept slipping into the tree wells and I was so stressed I was so afraid I was about to lose another friend. I remember these voices in my head just saying how can you be so fucking stupid how could you let this happen why didn't you double check as I was overwhelmed by all these voices, I just remember feeling this urge, I had to pee. I didn't even think twice about it before the warm liquid started pouring down my leg, and now I'm running down this mountain chafing with this piss all over my leg and my navy blue spandex, and all I can think is that I never thought a Tinder date would end up like this. <laughs> about. 2 months earlier I'd been swiping through Tinder. I really liked it cuz it offered convenient casual sex. <laughs> One of the profiles I came across was this guy in a park ranger outfit and I love the outdoors so I just like got a big boner for this guy basically. And I swiped so fucking hard on this guy and when I found out we matched I was just like fuck yes. So We ended up talking, and we hit it off really well. We liked the same things, and he ended up asking me out. The school year was coming to an end, though, so we had to part ways, but we were still going to continue dating. We agreed we'd meet up for some backpacking trips over the summer, and so that's what we did. We ended up being in the Sawtooth Wilderness for one of our trips. We had like a 21-mile loop we were about to do. We hiked seven miles that day, and the sun was so warm on my skin, and it was just pure bliss. I was so happy to be here with this guy. For so long, I just felt like I kept getting fucked over by these like shitty guys on Tinder who gave these rapey vibes. I mean, no surprise, but, you know. <laughs> and so I was just super happy to be here with him. We got up to the lake that we were camping at, and we set up our tent for the night. I was laying on his chest, and we were both playing with each other's hair and just kind of soaking in the moment. He looked over at me like he had something to say, and I was just like, what? And He said, I think this might be kind of weird, but I think I love you, and I was just head over heels. I had not had a guy say this in quite some time now. and. Right after that, I immediately said I loved him back, and we just had the best fucking sex. After the sex, we just passed out that night because we were so tanked from that day. The next morning, we got ready, packed up our shit. It took way too long. We finally started heading out for the day to hike some more. We were both still pretty hungry after breakfast, so I stopped for a water break with him, and I looked through my pack to see if I had any food. I found out I had this Lara bar, and I don't know if any of you guys know what a Lara bar is, but they're just these granola bars that are basically all natural, and they have dates, chocolate chips, and like sea salt, and the chocolate chip cookie dough one, and that's exactly what I had. I didn't want to be a complete bitch and just like scarf it all down and, while he was like, super hungry, so I was like, oh, do you like, want half of it? And so he said yeah, and he took it, and we both scarfed that bad boy down real fucking quick. Immediately, the mood just changed his face just kind of dropped and all the blood just like left his face. He was, just looked like a ghost. And he was like, what were the ingredients again? I was kind of frustrated that he would even like ask that of me because like I've told him plenty of times, it's just dates, chocolate chips, and sea salt. I told him that again. And he kind of nodded and he accepted that. And then he was like, no, 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 check again. And I dug the wrapper out of my backpack and I looked again and read just what I had thought. He ripped it from my hand, and he pointed so hard at it, I swear it could have fucking tore it. He looked at me with the most disappointed look on his face, like he was so afraid of what was to come. And in bold, said cashews as the first ingredient. Joel, my boyfriend at the time, was really allergic to cashews. I kind of knew this from a few days prior. I had just scarfed down a bunch of cashew granola butter. Then I proceeded to give him head, and... You know, after he finished and shit, like, he was like, oh, my dick's kind of (laughs) itchy. I think that should have foreshadowed what was to come. I didn't really know the full extent of his allergic reaction. I had no clue what was to come. Everything just took a turn for the worse. His throat started to swell up and he was throwing up all over the rocks. He had snot running all down his nose and I was just so stressed and I couldn't stop pacing around and I just... Didn't even want to look at him because I knew I'd just basically destroyed him. He told me to look through his pack for an EpiPen, and so I caught the EpiPen out and I handed it to him. He hovered over his leg for probably a good 30 seconds, and I knew he wasn't going to be able to do it. I said, would you like me to do it? He agreed, and I grabbed the EpiPen, and I remember we both looked at each other, and our hands were shaking. There was snot all over his face. I'm just sobbing, and we both count down, and we shove it into his leg and hold it for 10 seconds. Immediately, he felt relieved. His throat started to open back up, but this was only temporary. It started to swell shut again, and we had no clue what to do. We had nothing else. We had no satellite phone or anything, and we were like a good nine miles away from any service or anything. There was barely anybody on this trail because it was so washed out from all the snow Idaho had this past winter. There was no one out there. But there was a group out there that we saw earlier that was camping out there and I decided it would be a good idea to go and get them. I went and I remember just yelling, help, help. I was so afraid and that they didn't have anything and I got there and tried to tell them the situation and they had nothing to help me with. It was these three ex-military guys, they said they would follow me back to see if they could do anything. I brought them back and they had nothing they could do. I remember one of the guys joking and saying, was your last meal at least a good one? I just kept sobbing even harder at this moment, and I was just so frustrated because why the fuck would you say this? Then they're like, oh, we're going to need to do something or he's going to die soon. And that just tipped me off. I had no clue what to do, but I knew I needed to do something. I thought that maybe like I could carry his backpack and my backpack, and we could walk down, but... That was a stupid fucking idea because i don 't know how I was supposed to carry one hundred pounds on my back and try to escort my anaphylactic boyfriend down the mountain, but I came to this conclusion that, hey, like maybe I could run down the mountain, and I brought up this solution to the group, and they all kind of just chuckled at me, except for Joel. I proceeded to tell him like, no, like I run cross country, like I run a shit ton of miles, I could do this, I could get down there in like one to two hours they all disagreed and thought that it would take at least four and it would be way too late. He could be dead by then. I was so frustrated that they would even doubt me like this. These people don't even know me. What else were we supposed to do? Like we were basically just finger popping our buttholes up there doing nothing. <laughs> and so the only thing we could do was for me to run down. And so I grabbed this shitty paper map that we had, shoved it in my sports bra along with his Subaru's keys and my phone and I started to run down the mountain. I kept running and running, and I ran probably five miles over these rocks. I just kept slipping, and blood was everywhere. I had so much dirt on me, and I'd finally found this elderly couple. I just remember yelling, help, like, do you have anything, an EpiPen, just something. They looked at me just so shocked, like I had just been in the woods for like two months or something. They were just like, what, and I, I was like, do you have a satellite phone, something, and This guy just looks kind of confused and digs out his satellite phone and he's like pushing some buttons trying to dial for help as I'm explaining the situation to his wife and it's just a complete shit show. He can't get any fucking service and I just remember I wanted to pull out my hair. I was like, these are what these phones are for. like For moments like these when we're out in the middle of nowhere and you need service. And there was nothing I could do, but earlier I had grabbed these GPS coordinates from this Garmin device we had from up there, so I just gave them the coordinates, and I said, if you could just get help, keep trying to call, please get someone up there. I continued to run down the mountain. I was sobbing, and I just remembered I wanted my mom there so bad, and I was just completely scared. I finally got down to the trailhead, and I saw this woman in a straw hat walking away from it. And I was just like, help, please, help. And she threw her head over her shoulder and just started running towards me. I was so out of breath at this point. I'd run like eight miles down this mountain. I had blood all over my legs. I'm so completely drained. And I just tried to tell her the situation. She led me to this campground host RV. And inside, it was just exactly what you think an old single man would be living in. was completely outdated. There was a Minions tissue box on the table and Keebler cookies and Diet Coke everywhere. I'm sobbing in this little shitty RV in the middle of nowhere, basically. He's just like, oh, do you want a fudge stripe cookie? And I'm like, are you kidding? I don't want a fucking fudge stripe cookie right now. I want 911. And he gives me the landline and I'm calling 911 and I'm trying to get a helicopter up there i 'm just so afraid i don 't know how Joel is up there; he could be dead, he could be fine, and I just keep trying to get a hold of them and finally they get a helicopter up there. They say they 're going to send this search and rescue d team to me, so basically, that D team would come to me, and we 'd walk on foot up the mountain again, so they come, they pick me up, we take a speedboat to like the end of this lake, so we cut some of the mileage down, and we start to run up the mountain and the medics start to run. They look at me like, oh, this is gonna be really tiring, and I'm just like, yeah, we got like seven more miles of this shit, and they start walking, and I just grow hopeless. I think that there's no way we're getting up there in time. It's gonna take like six hours, and they don't even have anything like a sleeping bag. All we have is like little day packs, so I don't know what they were gonna do when we got up there. We got a call on the radio saying that Joel had finally been picked up, We were all so happy. We all hugged each other, and we started to walk back down. From there, I took the speedboat back with them, met up with a firefighter, and he accompanied me halfway to go see Joel, which was like three hours away. So I'm driving in Joel's Subaru to Twin Falls, which is three hours away, with this firefighter in the car, and I'm telling him about this shit show of a situation. He insisted that when we got to the firehouse, I should take a shower because I'd been through so much at this point. I was like, no, no, like, it's fine. Like, I don't need a shower. I just want to go see my boyfriend. And I just walked into the firehouse bathroom, threw down the towel and just sprinted back out and headed toward Twin Falls. I remember looking down at my phone while I was driving. I saw a text from my dad that he had sent before I went on the trip saying, have fun, be safe. (laughs) <laughs> and then I got another text from Joel. This was the first time I had heard from Joel. I had no clue how he was doing. And the first thing he says is, can you grab the Mike's hard lemonades from the car? Because we're going to need them. And <laughs> I'm 20, <laughs> like, so I shouldn't have this alcohol anyways. But I bring this alcohol into the hospital anyways, and I'm trying not to let the little bottles clink together, but they definitely are. And I'm sure everybody knows there's something suspect, but... I walk into there and I remember I just had the biggest frown across my face and I had so much mud on, and blood all over my body and I just felt so horrible. He looked at me with a smile and I was so surprised because I was like, I just almost killed you. How could you even fucking smile at me? I was so worried that he was going to take back, that he loved me or that he didn't want to be with me anymore. I was so worried because I just had completely fucked up but he accepted me for my fuck up. I guess that didn't really matter because I broke up with him like three days ago. Thank you.
2: I can't live without I'm in love But I sure pick a bad
0: time To be in love This is Risk. This is the Jayhawks behind me now. And we just heard from Sammy Sponenberg. I hope that her former boyfriend is all well and good now. And before that, a little interstitial created by our episode editor, Jeff Barr. There's a YouTube video called The Grapefruit Technique. This wonderful lady shares how to include a grapefruit in oral sex and i thought that jeff had added those spectacular sucking sounds to it but no that those are the sounds that that wonderful lady really makes now listen if you love what we do on risk nothing means more to us than that you the fans get involved with us there's so many ways to do it You can leave comments and reviews about the series on iTunes. Those iTunes comments and reviews really help to bring eyes to the show, ears and eyes. You can discuss episodes on our site at risk-show.com or Reddit or in our Facebook discussion group. You can help us get the word out about the show on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all at risk show. You can create Risk theme songs or audio interstitials if you email me for the instructions at, at risk showcom And of course, you can pitch us your stories at the submissions page at risk-show.com. But maybe the most essential way you can help us out to help us keep all this going is to go to patreon.com risk And become a patron of ours there. If it's only for $1 a month, you'll still get access to lots of bonus content. You know, we put entire stories there on a regular basis. If you give $10 a month, you'll have access to ad-free episodes. And higher contributions will get you all sorts of other perks and prizes. It means so much to us to have the financial help of the people who really love and believe in what we do. So come visit us and become a patron today at patreon.com slash risk. That's patreo dot slash risk. Our final story on today's episode comes from the wonderful Canadian storyteller, Nisha Coleman. Nisha shared this with us. The last time we were in Toronto, it's a really beautiful story. And we call this one Two Catherines.
3: I think it's safe to say that I'm a hermit. It's like the level above just a homebody. But I'm kind of a hermit with a paradox because I'm always saying to people, let's hang out. I miss you so much and I'd love to get together and catch up on old times. And I actually mean it when I say it because I actually do love people and I love hanging out with people and I'm, I'm actually really happy when I'm with people. Just the getting out of the house part that's a problem. Like for example, about a year and a half ago, I was doing my book launch for Busker in Montreal. And I look out into the crowd and I see one of my old friends, Catherine, is there. And I can see her from a distance. I recognize her ice-fjord colored eyes and and her long brown hair and her pensive semi-smile. And I think to myself, I haven't seen her in so long. I mean, we used to see each other a lot more back when I played more violin and she played accordion and we'd collaborate on different things and we'd see each other at events and she once baked me these chocolate lavender cupcakes in exchange for playing on her album. That was a long time ago. And so when we get a chance to chat that night, I say, Catherine, my God, it's been so long. She says, I know. I say, we should hang out. She says, yeah, why don't you come to my house for tea? And I say, I would love to do that. And I would love to do that. I would genuinely love to get to know Catherine better. She's this fascinating individual and an epic composer. She once composed this folk opera that involved over 25 musicians. There wasn't even enough room for them all on stage. And she had things like like dissonant drones, which she loves, and tons of accordions and, and violins and a huge choir. As a fascinating individual, I just would genuinely like to get to know her better, and she actually does invite me over for tea a week later, but I'm out of town at the time. Then when I get back into town, I slip into into hermit mode. I don't really go out much. I don't really see people, and I keep writing to myself in my notebook, go out, call someone, talk to a human. You'll feel better once you do. And I know that's true, but but I don't do it, and I don't do it, and a month goes by, and then another month goes by, and then pretty much the entire winter has gone by, and I haven't really seen many people, and I haven't gotten together with Catherine. And then in early April, it's reported that Catherine is missing, and it's all over Facebook and the local news, and I am dumbfounded. I don't know what this means. I know what it means when a kid goes missing. I know what it means when an Alzheimer's patient goes missing. What does it mean when someone my age goes missing? I don't get it. And then her closest friends start to divulge certain information, such as she'd been extremely suicidal for a long time. She had been in and out of the hospital and on and off different medications and nothing was working. And in the last week, she'd been going for icy swims in the St. Lawrence River at midnight. And then her bag was found by the shore of the river. And so, yeah, she's missing, but we're not expecting to find her alive. The next day, I go down to the shore of the river where her bag was found, and there's a few of her friends there, and we stand at the edge of the caution tape, and we watch the divers coming on and off of the police boat as they're searching for her body in the freezing water that still has ice on it. And after a while, this becomes unbearable, so we decide, well, let's, you never know. I mean, we could go for a walk in the woods. She might be in a fugue state. There's still a little hope. And so we go for a walk. We know we're not going to find her, but it's better than doing nothing. And on my way home, I keep seeing her. I keep seeing her silhouette on the street, and I keep seeing her face in the metro. It's as if my subconscious is desperately searching for her. And when I get home, that's when the weight of the guilt sets in. It's like cement, heavy setting in my chest. And I think, fuck, I didn't know. I didn't know she was suffering so much, but maybe if I had gotten together with her, she might have told me, and then I might have known, and then maybe could have done something. All of these things spinning in my mind. And the next day, it's even worse. And I don't know what to do with this horrible feeling. It's taking up all the space. I don't even have space for grief because all I can feel is guilt. And so I channel all this guilt into a letter for Catherine I tell her how sorry I am that we never got together and that she was suffering so much and that she felt that that was the only way, the only thing that she could do. And I decide I'm going to burn that letter in the river. Now, Montreal is... An island, so there's the St. Lawrence River in the south where Catherine disappeared, and then there's le Rivière de Prairie, which is in the north, and that's where I live. So I take my letter to the river in the north. And it's one of those super shitty April days where you are so desperate for spring, it's so desperate for warmth, but it's just cold and rainy and dark with a chance of snow, and there's no one around, I'm by myself. I go down, I get to the shore. I stick my, my hand in the water. It, it is so cold that it burns my hand. I quickly take it out. And I start to burn this letter for her. And I watch the ashes just falling into the swiftly flowing water. And as I'm burning the last little piece of this letter, I sense movement on my left. And I turn, and only a few meters away, is a young girl, 15 year old, wading into the icy water. And at first I am immobilized because my brain is tripping on this image that is at once absurd, a young woman walking into icy water, and yet it's somehow familiar because my friend Catherine had just done this three days before. And I can't save Catherine now, but I know with absolute certainty that I'm meant to do something now. And my body fills with so much adrenaline. It's as if I've been uh, injected with a like a super powered supplement. And I realize this is how people can lift up cars. But all the power in the world is not gonna teach me how to swim. And she's getting farther out, and she doesn't know I'm here. And if I actually have to jump in there and save her, the river's going to take us both. It's freezing, and it's going fast. So I need a different tactic. And so I jump out onto a rock that's closer to her. And then she senses movement on her right, because she didn't know I was there either. And now she knows she's not alone. And we lock eyes. And the girl takes a step back, and another step back. And she climbs out of the river. And she just sort of sits on the bottom of the riverbed. And I run up and over, and I sit on the top of the riverbed, and I look down at her. And she's just gazing out at the river as if nothing has happened. And I'm supposed to be a writer, but I can't think of any words that I could use at this moment that is going to get her to trust me. So I just say, hey, are you okay? And she's freezing and suicidal. She's obviously not okay, But she says to me, yeah, everything's fine. And I don't have a phone, I can't call for help, and no one is around, and I don't know what else to do, so I tell her about my friend. I say, listen, I just lost a friend of mine in a river three days ago. She was severely depressed, and I don't want that to happen to anyone else. And she turns and looks at me, and she says, well, don't worry, because everything's fine. Now I need a different tactic. I'm not sure what to do, so I I just back off. I give her a little space. I go sort of where I was before, just behind some trees. I can still keep an eye on her. After a few minutes, she climbs up the bank, and she collapses into the grass, and now I can't wait any longer. And so I rush over to her, and she hears me coming. She opens her eyes. She gives me this look, this sort of dreamy, serene smile, as if she's just sunbathing on a beach, and I'm just there to hang out with her. She's clearly disoriented, which is one of the signs of hypothermia. And I tell her, listen, I'm really worried about you, and I'm going to call you for help now. And I can't call for help, but I just want to sort of test her. I want to see what her reaction is. She's ready. And she doesn't react. And so I know she's ready. And at that moment, an older woman stops on a bike, and she says do you guys need help? And I say, yes, do you have a phone? And she doesn't have a phone, but she jumps off her bike and she runs over and she kneels beside the girl and she starts bombarding her with questions. What happened? Did you faint? Did someone hurt you? Are you drunk? And the girl, she's still disoriented. She's just saying, no, no, no. And that's when a third woman stops. She's a jogger and she has her phone and she dials 911. So help is on the way. And the 911 operator says, we got to get the girl's wet clothes off. Now, as a 15-year-old girl, I'm sure you can't think of anything worse than being stripped in public. And we tell her, we have to get your wet clothes off, we have to, and she doesn't react, but when we're trying to peel off her wet jeans, she gasps and she tries to sit up, but we've got our coats off, and we cover her with our winter coats. And me and the older woman, we just start spooning this girl from either side. We're just getting as close as we physically can to her and try and give her as much body warmth as possible. And the woman who's on the phone, she starts massaging this girl's legs and feet to try and get the circulation going. And she says into the phone, her feet are blue. And the girl hears this and she starts to freak out and she's hyperventilating and she's crying. And I reach up and I start to just caress her head. And I say, it's okay. It's okay. I'm running my hands through her, her thick black hair saying, it's going to be okay. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. And as I do this, my chest just expands with so much love for this kid. It's as if she's my kid, or my sister, or my friend, and all I want is for her to be okay and for her to want to be okay, and all I wish is that someone could have done this for Catherine three days before when she disappeared at midnight into the dark waters of the St. Lawrence. I take the girl's small hand, and I say, squeeze my hand, and she does. I say, squeeze it harder. She squeezes it harder. And I say, as hard as you can. And she squeezes it as hard as she can. And in the strength of her tiny hand, I can feel it. It's the desire to live. And pretty soon, all the first attendants arrive the ambulance and the police and the fire trucks and they wrap her in blankets and put her in an ambulance. And the police need a statement. And I'm the only witness. So I tell them everything. I tell them everything what happened. And they say, based on this statement, we will treat this as a suicide attempt, which means she will get extra psychiatric care. And as I watch the ambulance disappear down the avenue, I hope that that girl gets what she needs. And I hope that I'll see her again. Hope that I'll see her by her high school, which is right by the river, maybe hanging out with her friends or kissing someone she loves. Now, as soon as all the first responders are gone, it's just me and the woman who called 911. I don't have my superpowers anymore. My adrenaline's wearing off and my body's starting to tremble like crazy and the woman, she hugs me and I start to cry all over her and I tell her all about my friend who disappeared in the river three days before. She says, how old was your friend? I say, she was 33. And the woman shivers and says, that's the same age as me. And after all we'd been through, we hadn't even introduced ourselves, so I, I tell her my name, and she tells me her name, and her name is Catherine. In the aftermath of this event, in the days and the weeks that follow, I still feel a lot of guilt. I still feel you know, grief, and I still feel lost, but I also I feel something else. I'm noticing things. I'm noticing The sunlight, which was pale, it's getting stronger every day, and I'm noticing the snow retreating, and I'm noticing the grass regaining its color, and I can feel the life just breathing into everything, the sap flowing through the trees again, my own blood hurtling through my own veins, and I feel not happy, but I feel happy to be alive. For a while after Catherine disappeared, they didn't find a body at all. They stopped looking. But in early May, it happened. Her body washed up on the shore of the St. Lawrence River, 180 kilometers away. I don't judge Catherine for what she did. She made the choice that she felt was the right thing for her from her perspective. But here's something. I still see her all the time. I see her silhouette on the street I see her face in the metro. I hear her voice in the coffee shops. And I hear a line from her epic folk opera in my mind over and over. It goes like this. From this moment onwards, we will be brave. We will be honest. And peace, like a river, will run through the city. Thank you.
2: Jacket and a black bandana Kicking over trash cans And telling jokes in Atlanta When I got the fever It hit me like a fan On the back of my hand I don't know who I am But I'm free for nothing Good for nothing too Crazy dreams, to dream Still crazy about you Won't you let me in one more time Babe, I wanna feel it too well, nothing is alive, babe, if you know it ain't true. Take a look at me now.
0: Take a look at me now. That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Leif Volabek behind me now, and we just heard from Nisha Coleman. Uh, By the way, I wouldn't have known about this song if it wasn't for Risk fan Sarah Irvin. Sarah creates, about once a month, she creates a list of about 15 or so songs and sends it to me, a Spotify playlist, songs that she thinks I might one day like to include on the show. If you'd like to do that, just email me at kevin at risk-show.com. It's another way you can help. Also, don't forget that we are very much looking for holiday-themed stories right now. Stories about Thanksgiving, Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, Festivus even, New Year's Eve. (laughs) Stories set during those holidays or that, you know, bring them to mind. Pitch us at the submissions page at risk-show.com. And don't forget to check out Heaven's Gate the new podcast where Glenn Washington explores the story behind the mysterious cult, the Heaven's Gate cult. Find it in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. Now, here is where Risk is appearing live next. On November 3rd, we are in Baltimore, Maryland at the Creative Alliance. On November 9th, we're in Chicago, Illinois at Lincoln Hall. On November 10th, for the first time ever, we're coming to Madison, Wisconsin, at the High Noon Saloon. And on November 11th, we're in Detroit, Michigan, at the Magic Bag. Now, on November 14th, we're back at Littlefield in Brooklyn. And on November 18th, we're back at the Bootleg Theater in Los Angeles. Now, we're coming to Phoenix, Arizona. For the first time ever, on December 2nd at the Valley Bar, the theme that night is jaw-dropping. And we are still taking pitches for that Phoenix show. So if you live anywhere near Phoenix, pitch us your jaw-dropping stories for our December 2nd show there. If you feel like you might want to try storytelling, but you'd like a little bit of training, You'd like a little bit of guidance on it. Well, you can look us up at thestorystudio.org. We do one-on-one training over Skype. We have entire courses, video courses, that you can download and watch at your own pace. If you live in New York or Los Angeles or Minneapolis, we have in person workshops where you can be working with an instructor and a whole class full of people. And we do corporate workshops, business storytelling, communication around the office that includes a narrative spin to it. We've done workshops for Google and Pfizer and Citibank and many, many more. You can find all of that at the Story Studio. .org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk.